Hi, this is Nate Silver, and I'm here with one of my favorite authors of all time, Michael Lewis. His latest book, The Undoing Project of Friendship That Changed Our Minds, came out um, this week on Tuesday. And you should all buy it and actually read it. Um, and I'm with Michael here to talk about why a little bit. But thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I kind of remember, you know, I think we've managed to talk to one another maybe once every couple of years. And I remember there were kind of seeds of this idea before. But what brought you to um, to choose this topic and to write about um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky? You know, I wonder when I first mentioned it to you because, I, you know, I first I, – that I first – uh, even heard of their existence after Moneyball was published. Yeah. So the year after, in the year after Moneyball was published, uh, the behavioral economist Richard Thaler and the lawyer, legal scholar Cass Sunstein published an article saying that I, in Moneyball I kind of missed the story. They didn't say they <laughs> they suggested that I should go read the collected works of Tversky and Kahneman to understand why baseball scouts misjudge baseball players. And um, I'd never heard of them, so I went and kind of started looking into it, and then found out that Kahneman was up the hill from me in Berkeley, and went and visited him. And by about two thousand and eight. I, I, eight, nine, I kind of realized there was a story in the relationship. Um, and it, it just took a long time to figure out exactly how to tell it. Yeah. And to, and to gather, gather the string for it. I mean, I had to spend a lot of time in Israel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the backdrop of this thing is Israel in the, during the birth of the nation. And so I've never been, a, but I, I like the kind of been. frontier. Well, now I want to go after reading the book, right? That's so a, I kind of like, I, I like the, the frontier spirit, right? Where this is kind of a, a new country and it's relatively hospitable to new ideas. It's like more art. Silicon Valley than Silicon Valley. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it, it really is. And, and also it was a place where even the most ethereal academic psychologists felt the need to pitch in and do practical things. Yep. So you have Danny Kahneman, who I think is probably by nature a French intellectual, uh, <laughs> and, and, but ends up, um, you know, redesigning the, the Israeli army's uh, uh, personnel system. So he, does, he, he builds the algorithm to determine who's going to be an officer uh, and is training Israeli fighter pilots and tank commanders. And so they're mixing it up in the world in all kinds of ways that it actually ends up informing their work. Anyway, your question was like, how did I decide to write about these guys? And and there were a couple things going on. Um, one, the ideas are fascinating. Though most of the ideas, I bet, uh, were already familiar to you. You probably were familiar with their papers. Well, this is why it's kind of strange to hear you say that you hadn't – because it's, it's so implicit in so many things you've written about, right? Kind of errors and – in judgment and people from the outside detecting these errors in judgment, sometimes finding ways to to profit off them in different ways. Right. Um, it's a wonder that I hadn't heard of them before. I think I, that's, yeah. I suppose that's right. <laughs> there are huge gaps in in my in my education, and uh, this must this was one of them. So I so I came to it with a freshness that probably was helped. If I thought that this is something I I kind of always known about, I'd probably been less enthusiastic about it. But what really charged to me was the the attempt the ability the, the, the possibility of writing this weird love story and yeah. uh, taking uh, these two guys whose ideas and the generation of the ideas and roughing it up against their consequences in the real world so I, I it was just it was it was partly a literary challenge and I thought uh, it was doable 
and it's kind of what I always my touchstone with books is always are the characters good enough, and they were such good characters mm-hmm. that I just thought you know this will work uh, that can make this work. And I did think at some point, and this is how I sold Danny Kahneman on the idea of letting me do this, that they're so important, somebody one day is going to feel the need to do this book, and it might as well be (laughs) me. Actually, my line to him was, someone's going to do it, and it's going to probably be done badly, and if anybody's going to get a chance to do it badly, (laughs) you ought to just let me do it badly. (laughs) Because I know you now. I mean, I got to know him over years. Yep. And I and Amos Tversky's son was my student at Cal, and I knew and the oh, Tversky cool. family kind of opened up the archives and their lives to me in a really generous way, and it was became pretty clear at some point no one else was going to have the access. And what was going on while I was working on the book, the story was dying off before my eyes. I mean, yep. every time I go to Israel, someone I interviewed the time before who was yep. really really important to talk to had died. So it just it kind of had to be done now or 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 not done at all. And it, and it has a very intimate feel to it, the book, right? I mean, it really kind of gets inside this relationship with stories that I don't think had been been told before, at least not told outside of family and friend circles. I mean, how much time did you spend talking to to Danny in particular? It was over several years. Yes, the relationship was so opaque to people outside of the relationship. Yeah. People, Even people who you might think know more about these guys than anybody didn't even know they broke up. That they disguised the fact that it had a huge falling out from yeah. everybody. Yeah. Uh, and I had their breakup letters. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they were in Amos Tversky's file cabinet. So I could reconstruct the whole thing. And then Danny ended up helping and got help from Amos Tversky's wife. But the, in the beginning, the first thing he said to me, I, I walked through his door in 2007. And I said, it's an honor. And he looked at me like, strangely, it's an honor. He says, oh, you mean the Nobel Prize? Never mind that. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> and and he's, he sets a he, – he, he tried to put me at my ease right from the beginning and then involved me in the writing of his book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. So he would send me pieces of it on Read It and tell him that it wasn't as bad as he thought it was. In fact, it was really, really interesting. And uh, And then – I did things. I did things with him. I went. I went to his he, his last lectures at Princeton when he was a professor, and I helped teach his precept after the class. Yeah. I went with him to Israel, and we went and visited the Israeli army base. But we just did like lots of stuff together. I go yeah. on long walks with him, and he, yeah. and the story he does not tell his story, so he doesn't tell. He just doesn't tell his story, and maybe that's um, in character because he's a little suspicious of stories, right? But I I I got bits and pieces over hundreds of encounters with him uh, and either email encounters or long hikes or lunches or dinners or whatever. And it was all kind of by indirection. Um, and it wasn't until the very end, the last year or so, where I was you know, saying, this is a book. You need to explain to me what happened in the chicken coop when you're hiding from the Nazis. You've got to remember. I don't remember what he'd say. And I'd say, well, did this happen? Oh, no, that didn't happen. You know, <laughs> and so it was uh, – piecing his story together was um, – it was a bit like taking a, a vase that had been shattered and the pieces were all over the room. Yep. And you kind of gather up all the pieces and try to glue them back together. And some of the pieces were missing, but he did his best to help me find them and show me where they fit. And I think he said at one point, you quote him as saying, no one ever made a decision because of a number they need. They need a story. Um, so, so Danny, is, you know, it's funny. <laughs> he's created this body of work with Amos Tversky and some on his own about the, essentially the – human fallibility and the the mistakes the mind makes and they've kind of given you this roadmap to your own mind it's a partial roadmap but it's an interesting roadmap 
And that to come at the end of it at age 82 or whatever he is now, totally fatalistic about people's ability to use this roadmap yeah. for any good, any good purpose, yeah. it's a little odd. I, don't, <laughs> I think he's being disingenuous because I think actually he doesn't want the responsibility of what happens when people try to use this stuff. And I think um, Amos was more – they were equally fatalistic about people's ability to detect their own biases and correct for them mm-hmm. because they thought of them as cognitive illusions and they thought the analogy was optical illusions. And you see, an opti- you, know, you see an optical illusion and even when someone points out to you that it's an illusion, you still see the illusion. I think they thought that's kind of what happened in the mind. That was not a bad analogy for it. Yep. But um, Amos was – pretty bullish, I think, on yeah. the possibility of creating an environment, a decision-making environment, where you, you they're corrected for your mistakes. So a little, little story. I mean, this is, and this is one of like dozens of similar sorts of stories that come out of his file cabinets that I found breathtaking. It felt like the whole world sought out Amos Tversky to ask for his advice. And, like, you, and you wonder, how, <laughs> how do you even know? He's this obscure academic psychologist. Sure. There was a guy named Jack Marr who was... Head, he was a former military guy who was in charge of training all of Delta Airlines pilots. This was in the mid-late 80s, and um, he had 6,000 pilots in a training program. And he, he said, we had this, I had this problem. He said, my pilots were doing weird things. We, they were, we, we were making weird mistakes. And I don't rem- actually remember this, but maybe I was living out of the country or something. But he said, we had plane, several times planes landed at the wrong airport. Like we were, they were going to Miami and they landed yeah. in Fort Lauderdale, this yeah. kind of thing. And we didn't know what – we thought something's wrong with the decision-making of our pilots. We need to at least address this subject. And he looked around for somebody to talk to him about decision-making. He got Amos's number and called him up and brought Amos in. And he said, to this day, Amos has affected the way we train pilots and other airlines have imitated our way of training pilots. And he said the change he suggested in response to what they knew was he looked at what Delta was doing. And he said, the problem is your cockpit is this autocratic decision-making environment. The captain's a god yep. and nobody checks him. Nobody, nobody's looking for, to, to correct his judgment. And that's the worst sort of a decision-making environment. What you need to do is create a more egalitarian environment where people, like, the co-pilots can say stuff. And, and uh, Mar said, this is what we did. We changed the culture of the cockpit in relation to Amy Stavursky's advice. And those mistakes didn't happen afterwards. So it's not like this is useless stuff. Uh, I just think that, uh, that I, there's a, Danny, I think, by nature is charmingly fatalistic. And... I, and it is true that it's tricky how you take this stuff and put it into practice. In I mean, you, you could read this book as having, at least in the interpersonal story, a slightly tragic ending. I don't want to spoil it for people exactly. But it, it is different than, I guess, the stereotype of of the Moneyball type of book. Because in those books, you have um, an, an outsider, right, who applies new ideas. And there's some measure of vindication at the end, right? Um, the A's win the pennant, for instance, right? Um, or yeah. in the big short, Every some people sto- yeah. are very right yeah. and make yeah. a lot of money and aren't quite sure what, how to feel about that, right? But but here the payoff kind of comes kind of implicitly sort of after the <laughs> the story ends, right? In the payoff, there are a couple of moments where, the, where we break away from the main characters to show the consequences of their ideas in the world. And that, that's kind of victory. That is victory. That's what's, that's what's astonishing is that... that, that the way the ideas seeped into everyday life, but uh, the 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 tragedy of the ending of the relationship. Um, I mean, it's poignant. These two guys who really had more to do together, um, 
break up like lovers break up. And yeah. I've had a friend of mine who the book is dedicated to, Dacker Keltner, who's a psychologist at Berkeley, really interesting guy. He's a guy who introduced me to Danny, uh, said, you know, he was shocked when he read the thing and, and heard the story. He said, nobody does this in academia. Like, there are lots of partnerships. There are lots of collaborations. They don't fall in love with each other. They don't break up. They don't have this kind of dramatic arc. Yep. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen. And so it, it, it's a peculiar story in that way in that the intellectual um, interaction generated this sort of very high-pitched emotion. Uh, and, well, I mean, that is what attracted to me in the first place. I mean, I can remember moments when I thought, Jesus, this is a story. And one of them is when Danny's, like, dewy-eyed, talking to me one day. We were just talking about whatever we were talking about. And he starts talking about how he felt about Amos. And he says, you know, he says, you're in love with women and so on and so forth. He says, but with Amos, I was wrapped. <laughs> and he said, and, and he cared more about me than I cared about him. And they were just, you know, you see, it was just the most important relationship in either one of their lives and their wives even knew it. Yeah. And that, I just thought that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that you can work with that. Um, there's, there's a line in here, Amos was built to fight, Danny was built to survive. And, and those kind of characterizations come up over and over again. But I want to talk to you too about, you know, it is such an opposites attract kind of story, but in what ways were they compatible, do you think? What things, apart from um, being Israeli and being interested in some of the same ideas, I mean, what, what things do you think they did have in common, maybe? Well, on the surface, they were both grandsons of very famous rabbis, Eastern European rabbis, whose fathers um, were atheists. So they were in an odd kind of um, spiritual environment growing up. I think not, not dissimilar. Um, they, I mean, like they're both they're both Jewish psychologists in Israel. Yeah. So in some so ways, you say, <laughs> you say how different can they be? But yeah. as different as two people can be who are both Jewish psychologists in Israel. Yeah. And uh, the the um, the but it wasn't the they both had a sense of irony and a kind of very uh, powerful uh, ability to kind of observe the world around them. They were both very interested in what was going on under their nose. They were interested in politics. Mm -hmm. They were interested in warfare. They were interested in social life. They just went with funny things people did. Uh, so they had anecdotal interests. They, they, both, they both did see stories in their daily lives. Yeah. And they, they, that was grist for them, very much grist for the conversation. Um, but I think actually what the glue between them was not the similarity. It was things they found in the other that they lacked in themselves that they wish they had. Amos was a logician. He wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a mathematician. He was a logician. And, and Danny's mind is a jumble. There's no logic in it. Yeah. It's just like the attic filled with all these curiosities. And, and Danny's mind is the mind of a poet or a novelist, who, and he insisted on making himself a scientist, and he really wanted to be clear in his head and analytical and sure of himself, and he found that in Amos. So I think that was the, the thing that really glued them together. What do you think motivated Amos? Because it's, I guess it's you know a little bit more <clears throat> obvious with Danny, where he's kind of had, um, you know, he's a Holocaust survivor, and he's kind of an outsider and kind of on the fringes and looking in and very, that kind of makes one naturally critical. I mean, would you describe Tversky as being an outsider 
too? Or how do you think? He, no, he's he, an insider. Okay. A- Amos was like, Amos was, you know, the number one son of Israel. His mother was in the early parliaments. Uh, everybody loved him. Everybody thought he was the smartest person they ever met, the most charming person they ever met. People would say, Amos walked into a room and everybody just, he would not make a big deal of it. He'd just sit yep. and watch for a little while and he was, didn't look very, he wasn't a striking looking person. And then after kind of 10 minutes, Amos would open his mouth and after 20 minutes, everybody would be silent. Gather around Amos, just wanting to hear. So what he had, he had say. real charisma, not unbelievable. Just charisma for no, 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 okay. breathtaking okay. charisma. And, and <laughs> that someone said that to me that when Amos left Israel, the the hostesses of Jerusalem wept, <laughs> and uh, he he was just that guy. And um, and so what motivated him? So what what's draw Amos? Amos was hyper competitive. I mean, yeah. cra- in to a to a fault. Uh, he. He like had to win at everything, and now he was. Why he, he he could be gracious in victory, so he was so intellectually superior to everyone around him. He didn't he didn't seem he didn't he didn't irritate them by the way he he was as an academic. But if he went for a run with you, you know it was a race. If he uh, he did, if you were in an argument with him, he didn't lose. He didn't lose. He, he usually didn't lose, but he didn't even acknowledge he lost. He would have factual disputes with people. Every now and then, he wasn't wrong about much, but he'd say like, uh, he, 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 would be, he would actually have a wrong fact, and he would refuse to acknowledge that, the, you know, he can insist on his, so he was just competitive. And, um, you know, one of the weird things about this whole story is that Amos Tversky became a psychologist, because all kinds of muddy minds go into psychology, sure. troubled people, you know, it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's a land of misfit toys that field. And Amos was not a misfit toy. He could have been a physicist. He could have been a mathematician. He could have been almost anything. And the reason he ends up a psychologist is the first year when he goes to Hebrew University, it's the first year of the psychology department opening. And, you know, Israel without a psychology department is like Alabama without a football team. <laughs> and, and the lines were yeah. around the block yeah, to get into this funny. thing. And there were 20 spots. And it was the most competitive department to get into. And that's very clearly why he got in the line. He says, I, I want to win that one. And then he gets in. He says, "Like the feels all bullshit." Uh, yeah, I mean, and 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 he really did think that. Well, they do have. They, they do have to create have, another field within the field that's not bullshit. They do both have this instinct to call bullshit on things. Right? Oh my God! Well, that's yeah. you know, you, you, that's absolutely right. That they're both like they're both unbelievably gifted minds. Like really, really, really smart people. They're smart in different different ways, but they're smart in a basic way too. Yeah. And they are both. Like they find they can see the comedy in the world, uh, and and now they the way they the way they call bullshit on psychology is different though. Danny has to personally experience every bullshit part of psychology and do the work, and then realize this is nonsense. Amos just looks at it and feels contempt. So Amos like Amos doesn't have to suffer. That Danny has to suffer, but they come to the same place in the end. Danny has the experiences. What's the Point is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And it's easy. Each meal arrives in the mail, all the ingredients ready to go with simple and fun step-by-step recipe cards. Just lay it all out on your counter and dive in. And one thing to note is that, yes, 
it's simple to use, but you're still cooking. You still get that sense of accomplishment that comes from having made a great meal at home. You'll be amazed at what you can pull off in your own kitchen. And you'll probably pick up some cooking tips and ideas and find out about ingredients that you'll use for the rest of your cooking. You can choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you will never get bored with the cooking you're doing at home. Blue Apron also makes a great holiday gift. Give it to someone you love, and maybe they'll even invite you over for dinner. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash point. Start cooking at home. That's blueapron.com slash point. Okay? Back to the show. I'm with Michael Lewis, the author of The Undoing Project, and I, I want to shift a little bit. I mean, this book is coming out, um, came out rather, almost exactly a month after the 2016 election. You know, I know we, when you're in the midst of a book tour, you're being asked all types of questions, but I mean, do you have any thoughts about kind of. <laughs> The milieu of this book in this election, I mean, I know David Leonhardt at the Times kind of said, hey, this was kind of a triumph, Trump's victory for uh, uh, the, election, the election was a victory for gut instinct over empiricism, for cynicism over reason. First of all, do you believe that? Do you have any sense for what Kahneman and Tversky would have thought of Donald Trump? Um, so I'm not sure my thoughts are that interesting on this <laughs> subject, but I, I am interested in filtering this whole election through their lens. Um, because they would have their their work, and I think they themselves would have a lot to say about what just happened, and um, in no particular order. I think that they would say our work is all about um, human fallibility, and we we search for error because the error gives us a guide, a, a window into the mechanism. The errors the mind makes tells us about the way the mind is. Um, and we have discovered and we've shown over and over that fallibility is just part of human nature, the human mind, and, that we are, and it's not thing, something to be ashamed of. It's something in a way to be embraced and understood and maybe corrected for. To have someone running for president who essentially insists he's infallible uh, is, is such a sign of stupidity. I mean, that's what you, that's, you <laughs> that kind of attitude to your mind and your gut instinct is idiocy. It's stupidity. It's not intelligence. It's not a strategy. I mean, it is a strategy by default, but it's not good. So they would look at Trump and be appalled, but then a lot of people do that. Um, the, they'd be appalled just intellectually, never mind groping and, you know, sure. whatever he's done with his taxes and all the rest. Um, so uh, then I think they would say people are drawn, people want to make the world a more certain place than it is. They're very uncomfortable thinking probabilistically. Yeah. They're not, they're, and they're very uncomfortable turning to someone for advice or leadership and having that person be at, at all diffident, at all unsure. They want that person to seem totally certain. So they want, in a weird way, idiocy from the people who give them advice. <laughs> Stupidity. They want, they want their financial advisor to say, buy IBM, it's going up. Now, what Amos Dane would say is that if anybody says that, you should run the other way. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. Uh, and so, however, people don't do that. And so I think that in a weird way, the people who are following Trump were the kind of people who would let, take bad financial advice or bad medical advice or want, people, or want a general manager who was totally sure that the guy he drafted was going to be a superstar in the NBA. You know, that all that. They'd want – so they, they were – Trump was in a weird way preying on this need for certainty and confidence. Uh, and uncertainty is a tough sell. I mean, we've found that um, 
you know, if you say, hey... That's why it's still there to be bought. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it is a tough sell. That's why this book is available to be written. That's yeah. why you you have a place in the market. <laughs> is there's a kind of arbitrage going on. Uh, you're arbitraging human nature against reality. And uh, and so it's it's... You're right. It is a tough sell. The quote in the front of the book sets the tone for the book. Uh, it's the Volta- from the Voltaire's letter when he says, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is an absurd one. Sure. And uh, th- that uh, the I-, I do think you're right. Certainty is a tough sell. You found it in your business to be – but it is not an impossible sell. And the world's moving in that direction, haltingly, in fits and starts. Trump is a fit. <laughs> Trump is a backward <laughs> step, but it's we're that in the same way that like baseball management has become f- more and more less and less about the raw intuitive judgment of so-called experts and more and more about uh, kind of data-based uh, decision making. But do you think? I mean, do you think there is something about politics in particular? Because I mean, baseball. There has been kind of a revolution, right? And it turns out that it's not a unilateral win by the geeks, but, you know, in every front office are 29 out of 30, right? right. Um, whereas in politics, I mean, you take an example like like Brexit, for example, where the polls showed a, a too-close-to-call race and the pundits <laughs> said, no, 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 it's going to be remain, 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 and then leave wins, and then the pundits blame the polls. I mean, it seems like <laughs> there's something about politics in particular. Well, I mean, that's that's literally true, yeah. right? Um but something about politics in particular and something about Trump in particular. I mean, I talked to Danny actually about um, – I interviewed him about a month before the election. And he was kind of characteristically thoughtful and a little bit pessimistic. But, you know, but like you said, Tversky was more optimistic about how to operationalize some of these ideas. Right. right? And, uh, you know, it's funny. Danny is he's, – he is naturally pessimistic. He's, he's almost um, uh, self-consciously pessimistic. If he found himself feeling optimistic, he'd stop himself because yeah. he'd say, and say, that's not me. I'm a pessimist. Whereas Amos actually would say to Danny, pessimism is a stupid thing because if you're pessimistic, you live the, the bad thing twice. Once when you're being pessimistic, anticipating the bad thing happening, and then when you actually suffer the bad thing. So Amos was almost determinedly uh, optimistic. Uh, anyway, so... The question is, why isn't politics more like baseball? Well, political management has – campaign management has become a bit more like baseball, more de- data-driven. Sure. And just because Hillary Clinton lost and was supposedly a more data-driven operation doesn't mean that the data that the, 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 the process of managing the campaign was stupider. You maybe just had a, a product that wasn't as desirable. I mean, no, no brilliant – geek in a baseball front office is going to be able to beat a really good opponent with a bunch of AAA players. No matter how, you know, numbers will, will help you understand your predicament, but they won't, they, you can't completely change things. Um, and having said that, I've read quotes from the Trump children and the Trump son-in-law saying we just did money ball for politics, that we money ball the electoral I college. think they said that. We were at this Harvard yes, panel. Yeah, and, so, yeah. I mean, I don't know what they mean by that, <laughs> but they clearly were not uh, hostile to the idea of being analytical about how they approach their campaign. So I don't even sh- – I'm not sure there's a message in that. It, it is true that, uh, you know, it's, it's – um, people have trouble accepting that – Polls are only rough guides to what people are going to – what the population is going to do. And the analysis of the polls, as good as it, it is, it's only going to be – if you, if you only have a rough picture of the electorate, 
you're not, the analysis is not going to give you the perfect picture. Uh, you just and there's going to be some unpredictability in all. I mean, people are also kind of anchored to the most recent election, where in 2012 you had polls, and 2008 for that matter, you had polls that were both very stable and very accurate. You don't have to go back that far to years like 2000 when there was a fairly big polling error, 1980 or 2014 if you look at a midterm. Um, but <laughs> and if also if you if you took if you took what just happened and switch a few thousand votes in a few states, right. would er- the narrative would be completely different, right? <laughs> it would course. be m- yeah. how incredibly accurate these polls were. Uh, the, 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 it's, it's, so people, what's more interesting to me about the response to the election is what people want to say about it. How many people want to instantly dismiss um, analysis? Like, what's the substitute? I mean, it's, I do feel like... Yeah. It's like the person who walks into the casino and is given a choice between giving their money to someone who says they feel lucky at the blackjack table and giving their money to someone who's a provenly good card counter. Now, sometimes the person who is feels lucky will win, actually, quite a bit. They'll win, but they won't win as much as the card counter. But the, it's like taking the moment after the guy who feels lucky uh, wins a hand and saying, oh, look, all that card counting is bullshit. Uh, it's, it's, it's just dumb. Uh, but it's, it comes, it rises from some deep place. People don't like, um, the re- people don't like, especially people whose job it is to be the expert, uh, being challenged. Yeah. Cause having- this, this book is among other things, um, and kind of versus work is a critique of expertise, right? It is. It is <laughs> indeed. It is indeed. And it has a lot to say about financial expertise and political expertise and medical expertise and sports management expertise. Uh, and it's skeptical of expertise. It's saying that it, not, not, not in a hostile way. It's not, a, not in a, it, it's not singling out the experts. It's saying that experts like everyone else ha, are, 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 are wired for certain kinds of mistakes and they will make them. I think one of their fascinating ideas is the idea that if you can kind of make an expert more robot-like, right? Say that, oh, you know, Nate or whatever, Michael, generally has the right idea, but let's create a model of them because that way if they're having a bad day, they won't screw this one up potentially. I mean, I found that I found that fascinating where people think the kind of extra 20% gut instinct they add adds value when maybe that's the part that, it, you It's know, causing them problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to take a few final minutes here and talk about um, your process as a writer, and this is a little bit selfish because, you know, I um, wrote a book myself a few years ago and found that, like, there weren't a lot of people to talk to about kind of <laughs> what, what it's like to write a book. Um, but, you know, one thing I was interested by is so you don't take this little inside baseball, um, but it seems appropriate given the topic. You don't take advances for your book. No. Right? Because you feel is that like deliberately because you think it would skew your incentives? Yes. Um, I think people uh, don't pay enough attention attention to the incentives they bake into their lives. And they, they think they're more immune to them than they are. And they think that, I don't know, they, they, they take a big advance that, they, oh, it's not going to matter. It'll just, it'll, it's, just a, it's just smart strategy. I think that, I think people should own pieces of their companies. I don't think anybody should be just an employee unless you're really not there, unless you don't intend to be there for very long. But if you really care, if you're really going to do a good job, it helps to be an owner. And I want to own my book. I mean, I want to own the process. I want to know that I have risk. I want to know that if it, it stinks, that I'm not going to make any money. Uh, and, and I like it. So I like having skin in the game. I, I, I actually, I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable, but I think that discomfort is of great value and, uh, that it, it forces me even though if I'm not, even though I'm not really thinking about it, as I'm writing a book, I'm a thing I didn't take an advance for it. I forget about it. But, um, but somewhere deep down, 
I'm incentivized to work a little harder. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so that's why I don't take an advance. I don't want. I want. To, I want to. Ha- I want to be exposed to uh, the fortunes of the book. Um, one of the parts that felt uncomfortable to me in reading the book was when Kahneman and Tversky were collaborating on writing papers and li- literally had to agree on every sentence. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, when when you're writing, is it a solitary endeavor? Or are you in a coffee shop somewhere? No, I you... shut the world out. Okay, totally. Yeah. So yeah. the way and the way I shut the world out, I have an office and a, it's a it's, its own building, and uh, and I have to eliminate the, even the need, even the possibility of distraction. Uh, so there are no phones on or anything like that. Yeah. And I have I listen to I create a, um, a playlist for each book. I pick like 15 pop songs and I play them on a loop. And what happens is I cease to hear them or anything else. And this ends up being this like Pavlovian response to the songs. When I hear the songs, it's writing time. <laughs> and it is, it really is amazing how after a little while, if I'm wandering down the street and I hear one of the songs, I'm instantly looking for my laptop and thinking I should write. Uh, but that's what I just shut, I shut the world out and it is, it is, uh, it is solitary. Not in an artistic way. Do you <laughs> do you tend to write until you get exhausted, or is it more regimented and say I'm going to write from nine to five today? Or it's, I, it's not on a clock usually. It's, yeah. It um, if I'm in a pinch and I'm I'm afraid that I'm actually kind of falling behind a deadline. I need deadlines, uh, so I always give myself deadlines. And oddly, even though the deadlines are always kind of artificial and I've self-imposed, they they assume uh, the draconian aspect of one that I have a real deadline. I just start to, I believe my own lie. Um, and, uh, and when I'm, what the way I measure myself is just how many words I put on the page. So I say, I'll say to myself, I'm not getting up until I've written a thousand words, just not getting out of the seat. Yeah. So once I've told myself that, then what happens is once you create those pressures, you actually forget about everything and you just write and, uh, and you know, more comes out, you know, it, it doesn't, it becomes, a, the, the goals that are, I've set become minimums and I'm off in my own space and free to, to work. But I'm basically lazy. I mean, really, basically <laughs> I would do nothing if I didn't create these like artificial structures to prod me. I found that you ha- I needed to have an open-ended commitment at the back end. So I felt like if I got on like a streak when I was writing that you could kind of keep doing it, but then I don't know, right? It also took me Four years to write a book, and you've been a lot more productive than that. Well, I, I don't do anything else, though. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm running a company. And that's, that's deliberate to say, you know, learning how to say no to things and learning how to – because we have a lot of people at our office who are trying to write a book on the weekend, and they'll find ways to do it, but it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's very hard to write a book on the weekend. So, I, yeah, there are all kinds of things I just don't do. Uh, and it, that my life is, in many ways, very simple. Um, this is a stupid question. Um, can you see this book becoming a motion picture? Yes, quite yeah. easily. It's funny because even though the subject matter seems um, kind of complicated, it's not arcane. It's, you know, like how people are. Yeah. Uh, but it is in places kind of complicated. Nothing is as complicated as a collateralized debt obligation. Sure. And that was, you know, I spent pages of that on the big <laughs> short. I mean, not only is anything in the world as complicated as a collateralized debt obligation, but the uh, – so there's nothing that's hard to understand – and unlike the Big Short or Moneyball, there's a huge emotional component to the story. This the love between the two men, and um, 
and the stakes are very high. Uh, their thoughts save lives uh, in you know emergency rooms. Uh, that, that it's not hard to dramatize the emotions and high stakes. Now, the only way it happens is if some really talented filmmaker takes it because it's not easy to do. It's hard like The Big Short. So if an Adam McKay came along and got jazzed about it, sure, I think it's either going to be a spectacular movie or no movie at all. Yeah. That's the way it was going to be. Yeah. And So maybe it doesn't happen, but it, I could see how it would be done. Michael Lewis, I know we have to let you go, but thank you very much for spending this time with us. And again, we would um, highly recommend his book, The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds. It's out in stores and on the web pretty much everywhere already. So thank you again. Thank you, Nate. Pleasure to see you.